Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the third Sunday in Advent, December 12, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. can be found on page 1603 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played for the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think there's been more fear, more trepidation, and more hand-wringing during the last two years about the things of the end times, and especially about things like the mark of the beast, than at any other point in my lifetime. Now, I want to stop right here and let the gravity of that statement soak in for everyone for just a moment. Because during my lifetime, and especially during the 90s, the series of Left Behind came out. In fact, the 90s 
peak end times sensationalism was there. I can name any number of weird and crazy movies that people have either intentionally or unintentionally forgotten about, and it was the 90s. Anyone remember The Omega Code? Awful, okay? Uh, we, we got the first of two series of movies on the Left Behind series. Thanks, Kirk Cameron, for that. Uh, if you walked into bookstores, who remembers bookstores? If you walked into bookstores, they had an entire section devoting, devoted to end times prophecy. Okay? Perhaps only, and this was before my lifetime, American interest and obsession with the end times has exceeded now only during the 70s, thanks to Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth and the first round of obsession that it inspired. But this brings us back to our obsession during the present day. Something about the geopolitical environment we're in, but maybe especially because of the pandemic, has brought us back to this place of obsession. And, and I want to be clear, I'm talking about obsession that expresses itself almost always with panic, with fear, with uncertainty. Suddenly, based on what's happening in the United States, and based on what's happening in Eastern Europe, and based on what's happening in Southeastern Asia, the church is once again very, very concerned with the activities of the Antichrist. There's also a sensationalism that is spreading because of the mark of the beast. I have had multiple people in my life approach me as pastor with concerns because someone in their life told them they were in danger of receiving the mark of the beast if they got vaccinated. That's the level of fear and uncertainty we're at in the United States. And I want to point out how ridiculous and awful it is, except it's so very real and tangible. What I'll say at this point, in case we miss me rounding back to it later in the sermon, is simply this to assure you. You cannot today, as a Christian, accidentally get the mark of the beast. It's not possible. The mark of the beast is a willing identification with the kingdom of Satan. You can't accidentally get it. You won't accidentally be spray-painted with it as if someone is hitting you with graffiti. That's not how it works. But let's take a moment and look back at our gospel lesson in Luke 7 because it is, this whole notion of panic and uncertainty is being addressed here by Luke with this interchange between John and his disciples and Jesus. John's question through his disciples seems to push us into the same mindset of fear and uncertainty in a similar fashion to the present-day hand-wringing about the end times. Could John, John the Baptist, 
the great prophet of Advent really not understand that Jesus is the Christ? Is that really what's at play here in Luke 7? Could he be easily mistaken about this? Could it be that simple to be confused in your faith? Just as you can't accidentally and unintentionally acquire for yourselves the mark of the beast, John's question here in Luke 7 highlights the one big truth about the gospel lesson that is delivered to you. And if you don't pay attention to another word I say this morning, I want this sentence to go home with you. Jesus doesn't play it fast and loose with your salvation. He doesn't toy with it. He doesn't tease you with it. And he's never dishonest about it. Jesus wants you to be certain about who he is. And Jesus wants you to be saved. And Jesus wants you to rest in the assurance of your salvation. And so, turning our eyes back to Luke 7 this morning, let's see exactly what's going on here and what Jesus is teaching John and John's disciples and us this morning. It comes in two waves. The first wave is John's question to Jesus. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, said to, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, every year, there are a small handful of scripture passages that I wish I could take all of you behind the scenes into my sermon prep to experience the gloriousness of the theological geekery that goes on when you prep for a sermon. And this is one of them, so I'm going to try to do my best here. The, the writers of academic commentators, the PhDs who are at the universities who are paid to research this stuff, lose their ever-loving minds when it comes to John's question about Jesus. They just have no idea whatsoever to do about John asking Jesus if he's the Messiah. Again, how could John not know? And why would Jesus be so coy and mysterious with his answer? And these academics work themselves up into such a froth and a frenzy that it would almost be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. But rather than go any farther down the trail of cynicism, I'll just simplify all of this by telling you that John's innocent question and Jesus' so-called mysterious response don't matter. That's not the point of the passage. Maybe 
John is just trying to open his own disciples' eyes to the truth. Maybe John has some doubts of his own. Maybe Jesus is is leaning on the way he teaches with parables so that only those who have the eyes of faith can see what's going on. Whatever the case, is, what matters is the nature of Jesus' answer. The mode of his answer, if you will. And his answer at that point is a gift to the church. When Jesus is asked by John through his disciples whether he is the one to come, he isn't being coy. What Jesus is doing is he's taking John's question and everyone who's hearing John's question and he's pointing them all back to Scripture. Jesus says this, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, Jesus might now be might not be directly quoting Scripture here, he alludes to many Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, and especially from the book of Isaiah. And in doing so, in pointing to his miracles ministry, and his healing ministry, and his ministry of grace and compassion, What he's doing is he's actively highlighting that God's work of redemption through the Messiah will be to restore creation. That's what Jesus is doing here. All the brokenness, all the illness, all the disease, and all the natural calamities we see in the world around us And that last part is highly practical and relevant for today because of the storms that just rolled through America a couple days ago. All of that is a byproduct of sin in the world. It happens because creation has been tainted by sin. And here comes Jesus Restoring creation to the original goodness of God's design. Pointing those who would hear and see to the reality that Jesus comes as the conqueror of sin. Jesus heals the blind. He demonstrates that sin no longer has dominion. When Jesus causes the lame to walk, He is pointing back to the original intent of God's good and perfect creation. The same goes for when he heals leprosy and when he elevates the poor out of their destitute condition. Jesus is restoring creation. That's what he does. And in doing so, Jesus also directly connects John's ministry as a prophet back to the word of God. What then did you go out to see, Jesus says? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why is this so important? What is Jesus 
do here? Jesus simply teaches that the word of God always points to himself. Neither God the Father, nor God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit play it fast and loose with your salvation. A man-made Messiah simply won't do. And so Jesus steps in, answers John's question, and identifies himself as the Messiah God announces, as the Messiah Scripture proclaims. And this final, or in this truth, sets up the final important truth of the gospel lesson this morning. If John's question is contrasted here with the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. Jesus connects John and the entirety of John's ministry to God's plan of salvation, and all the people gathered to witness this event in history rejoice together because they had submitted themselves to John's ministry. They had repented. They were baptized. They were drawn by God into the wilderness to do all this. But the Pharisees, the religious elites, they had another response. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Then Jesus turns and says of them, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Why would the Pharisees reject Jesus in light of so much evidence and in the presence of all the good things Jesus was doing, in the midst of their presence, no less? It's because the Pharisees had a man-made Messiah. The Pharisees had been about the business of constructing a savior in their own image. And as soon as someone follows in the footsteps of the Pharisees here in Luke 7, the first thing that goes out the window with a man-made Messiah is the problem of our own sin. The Pharisees had constructed a political Messiah, one that would ride into Jerusalem on a white stallion with an army of angels behind him and rout the Roman occupiers and restore the Jews to their place of prominence in the ancient world. That was one of the Jewish understandings of the Messiah in Jesus' day. And it works out well for the Pharisees because they're already a part of the elite class. And now the Pharisees were set up with the Messiah to be the power brokers in the new earthly messianic kingdom. That's what they were angling for. That's what the Pharisees were jonesing for. Because of this mold of the false Messiah, the Pharisees had constructed Nothing that they could do, nothing that Jesus could do, 
would change their minds. They were set on this. If Jesus comes, like John, and acts as a pious monk, the Pharisees accuse him of being demon-possessed, literally of being weird. If Jesus comes, enjoying life among the common folk, bringing joy and hope and peace, he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He has no self-control. Either way, Jesus loses from a material standpoint because he's a threat. But before we roll over the Pharisees too much for their stubbornness and obstinacy, we've done this exact same thing here in America. I wonder how many different caricatures of Jesus have been created by the American church that remove us from the real Jesus. Identify a few here. See if they sound familiar. There's macho Jesus. You see the new drawings and illustrations of Jesus on the cross, fully ripped, ready to tear the arms off the cross and conquer for those who follow him. There's homecoming King Jesus, who is warm and fuzzy and has only words of affection for those who would hang out with him. There's one that we have to be really careful about. There's American patriot Jesus. And that's different from having pride in your country. American patriot Jesus is one that many have used to say that America is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old and New Testament. That America has a special place in God's heart. And then there's works righteousness Jesus, where Jesus is set up as an example of piety, of good works, of social justice for us to follow. That is Jesus the man who was all about peace, love, and rock and roll, and we follow in his footsteps. Now, if you isolate these, you can see the truth that was distorted. For every bad image of macho Jesus, there is the Jesus that calls men to be men and women to be women according to God's design for the world. For homecoming King Jesus, there is the reality that Jesus calls us into an individual, personal relationship with him so that we're familiar with him as our Lord and Savior. For patriot Jesus, we have the freedom and the enjoyment to celebrate religious freedom here in America won by those who have served in the armed forces. But the distortion, imagine brands of American Christianity presented to someone living in Baghdad or in China right now, having them conform to this idea of an American Jesus. And even works righteousness Jesus, Jesus as our example of love and compassion, there's a truth there, but it's been 
distorted. When that picture of Jesus has been distorted, the end result is always the same. Our problem with sin is minimized or eliminated altogether. And the problem of sin becomes someone else's issue. Someone I can point at. Someone I can ridicule. Someone I can accuse. But it's never me. We end up becoming distracted. And then we end up introducing uncertainty into our faith. But Jesus doesn't play it fast and loose with your salvation. And in doing that, Jesus also doesn't play it fast and loose with your sin. Which is why, as Jesus does in our gospel lesson this morning, we, by the Holy Spirit, are always being directed back to the Word of God. And the Word of God is always honest with you. It's always honest about your sin, and it's always honest about your Savior. Your sin is a problem. It delivers you to the point of God's wrath, to a sentence of death, and to eternal punishment. But your Savior, He delivers you. Your Savior sheds His own blood for your sins and washes you clean. Your Savior dies in your place. Your Savior conquers sin and death and the devil for you in His resurrection. And your Savior is the one who comes. We may doubt. We may fear. We may even fall into the deception of sensational nonsense when it comes to our Christian faith. But the, assurance, the surety we have this morning is despite what's going on in the world around us and despite all of the horrible takes people have about what's going on in the world around us, God does not play it fast and loose with your salvation. God does not toy with you. He does not tease you. Rather, he gives you his word. And in his word, he gives you his son. And his son is your savior, your redeemer. And he is the one who came, who died, who rose again, and who is coming once more, to bring you into eternity. Amen. And now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.